Hi, and welcome to Margins, where we have conversations with change agents. I'm Dr. Christopher Witt. Recently, Maria Hinojosa was in the Quad Cities for the Elwood F. Curtis Family Lectureship at Augustana College. The title of her talk was Owning Our Power and Our Voice. Maria is the founder of Futuro Media Group, as well as the anchor and executive producer of NPR's Latino USA and PBS's America by the Numbers. Last year, she launched the podcast In the Thick. I had a chance to sit down with Maria during her visit. I was also joined by my friend Tar Macias, president of Ola America, a news outlet based in the Quad Cities that shares stories about the contributions that Latino communities provide to Illinois and Iowa. One of the things that really strikes me with all of the work that you do, Maria, is that you really try to tell the stories or get people to tell their own stories, those stories that are marginalized, sometimes overlooked, forgotten. And that's something very powerful to get those stories out there, because when those stories are misconstrued, not told, forgotten, to me as a political scientist, it opens the door so much more for dog whistle type politics to work. Those appeals only work when people are primed over years, over generations of misinformation or not knowing the real stories. Do you see any kind of long-range impact when people are able to tell those stories and maybe changing the way that they're perceived in their own communities or perceived themselves? Yeah, so absolutely. And that's why, you know, when we were speaking at dinner um, last night, why you and I got really enthusiastic talking about kind of the politics of this region and what's possible. Because, you know, out there in the world, people have no idea, no, no idea visually, right, of this part of the heartland. They think heartland and they think white America. And and frankly, much of the mainstream news media, um, which is predominantly white, when they come into the heartland, they are telling those stories. It's almost as if they're kind of oblivious, right, that people of color in these regions are like in the background. When I come to these regions, one, I grew up in Chicago, so I'm a Midwestern girl, you know, born in Mexico. But when I come to these regions, I come to this region and I'm looking for Who's who's out socially? Where are people gathering? What what's going on at the grocery store? You know, where are people intersecting? Who's at the airport? So that I'm seeing a whole other vision of the American heartland, what I call Americana. Um, I see a very different thing, and it, to me, it's wonderfully diverse. Like when I was giving this speech at Augustana College, you know, and I look out into the audience, and it is it is diverse. It is not. 95% white and a few other people of color sprinkled in. This was um, much of the community, much of the campus, and it was really diverse. The problem is, you're right, Chris, when my colleagues, journalists, don't get out, and then you just have a repeating narrative of what the American heartland is and middle-class white voters in heartland America, in Iowa, in Illinois, of course, everybody talks about Iowa, Um then that narrative is getting repeated without understanding the complexity. And we all lose, right? We, we, we all lose as a result because if we're not telling the true stories of our country, that's just not good journalism. I mean, that, that's one of the things that, you know, just makes me appreciate TAR 
so much because, you know, in, in the decade that I've been here in the Quad Cities, we've developed a friendship and we've been able to collaborate, you know, sometimes us, sometimes working with a lot of other people. And, and you've been able to kind of keep some of the stories at the forefront that really we don't hear or we don't see in these other places. And how do you feel about the way in which the people of color in the Quad Cities are perceived or forgotten versus what we see in other cities. I mean, with Maria being from, you know, from Chicago, me being from Baltimore, I was just talking to my wife last night. She's from Chicago also, and we end up having, you know, such negative stories about communities of color in big cities like that. But on the flip side, without something like Ola America, we may have zero stories about the communities of color here. So how, how does that dynamic kind of strike you as somebody who's a leader here doing those things? Well, that's the whole reason All America came about. You know, about 18 years ago, I saw the need for something to tell, tell our, our stories to really, uh, it, it comes down to, to the term that if you don't define yourself, people will define you. And regular media are defining us in a very negative way way. So I figured there needs to be an outlet for us to really showcase all the contributions and the, and the great great things that we're doing in our community. Because we've been doing that for the past 10 years, 20 years. We're talking for almost 100 years. Uh, last night we were talking about the heroes straight, uh, here, the eight heroes that gave their life for this country back in the 40s for World War II and, uh, and the Korean conflict. So those are the contributions that you don't get any bigger than that, that uh, the migrant families gave their kids f to fight for this country, and they give their lives. So that's the ultimate sacrifice. And those stories get lost. People don't really—they're not on the forefront. And uh, in 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 when we started all America, it was in, uh, our mission is to to do our best to reflect uh, the Latino community of our area in a positive and dignified way. Because when we do something wrong, the regular media is very quick at putting us on the front cover or putting us on, 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 on the 10 o'clock news when, when, when people with our surnames or that look like us do something that's, that's, not, a, that's not acceptable in the community. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of times it feels like it, and something that, that you mentioned in your talk last night, something that I talk about with my students a whole lot, is this idea that in so many different ways, humanity is stripped away from people. People are, instead of being looked at as people in certain situations, they're labeled as illegal. They're labeled as criminal. They're labeled as something other than the norm. When you, when Maria, when you were mentioning this whole idea of the working class in the Midwest or in the heartland, a lot of times we've they end up having this focus on the white working class, and you have you know millions of people of color not only in the heartland, but across the country, who were probably raising their hands saying, wait a minute, I'm part of the working class, I'm working hard. Yet, the way that they're characterized because of their religion, their race, their ethnicity, they're characterized in things that really they aren't, characterized as illegal, as criminal, as other. And how do you see your work as trying to really bring forth more of a recognition of humanity? So I was always the other. Right. I mean, I was born in Mexico. I was raised on the south side of Chicago. Um, I was very accepted in my community. It was the community of High Park, which was kind of like a utopian multi-culti area, even before anybody even knew what multi-culti was. But um, 
Um, but at the same time, I was also the other, and I understood that I was the other. So when I approached my storytelling as a journalist forever and ever since, because my career has been on going on for a while, um, you know, I, I always approach it as um, as un- trying to understand otherness and invisibility. We have to understand that right now, the majority of our mainstream news media um, is directed and managed. Um, by our Anglo-American brothers and sisters. It's not something that we enjoy pointing out. It's not fun to have to do, but we do have to recognize it. I mean, NPR, uh, the network, just released its own diversity numbers. And they have a real issue. They have a problem. And they recognize they have a problem. So um, so the problem is that when you have a, a majority uh, non POC, non-people of color media, then it becomes that much easier to see the other as the other. And it's a very short step from seeing them as the other to labeling them and just buying into that label, um, the, the use of illegals. Um, what does it mean when we use that term illegals? What does it? And I, I, I understand and I don't blame people for using it. Like I'm like, this is not your fault. <laughs> Like the fact that you are using these terms is not your fault. These are the terms that you have heard and seen. Let's have a conversation about what is the appropriate, um, what's the right term. And many of the terms actually are very, they're difficult to wrap their, your, your heads around. But what I did love here when I was on campus at Augustana is that when I was in a poli-sci uh, class, we actually had the conversation. So what is right? You know, what, it, what does feel right? Yes, we don't use the term illegal to define a human being. In my newsroom, where we produce Latino USA and our podcast, In the Thick, um, and we don't use the term minority, because I've never, I never said to my kids, hey kids, you guys are members of a minority group. Never. Never, ever, ever. Um, and when we know that white America, Anglo America is going to become a numerical minority, don't you think we want to kind of redefine minority? Maybe, like, let's try and not set up that paradigm. Part of the national news media, right, substantial part, I think, set up that that paradigm. Becoming a minority, a numerical minority for white America, should mean that there should be a fear of that happening, as opposed to white America becoming a numerical minority um, means things are just going to get really interesting in our country. <laughs> like, wow, it's another it's another moment of our country. This is fascinating. Because again, I just say, nobody's going anywhere. You're not going, I'm not going, we're not going anywhere. So it's just going to get really interesting, which is what happens to me when I get to this part of the country. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting out here. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it seems like we see a lot of this, sometimes not with malice, but but just kind of communities of color as afterthoughts, not only in the media, but just in the community. I mean, bef- before we got here, Tar and I were communicating this morning and, uh, I was reminding him of the many times that he and I and a number of other, you know, I guess we could be called leaders of color throughout the Quad Cities, will be called in after the fact. Oh, well, we see the demographics are changing for the region, and uh, we're, we're coming up with various ideas. And how about you guys come on in and give the black and brown perspective? And then when you show up, you find out everything's been set. I mean, and and you've brought that up a number of times, Tar. How how do you see that kind of transferring from like from media, but also to 
to day-to-day operating within a community? I think to criticize our community in, in, a, in a constructive way, we're having a hard time going from a diverse community to an inclusive community. Mm-hmm. And that's the key, that now a lot of companies think, okay, we're diverse. Hey, we, we got so-and-so in our company, and now we got so-and-so in our company. So now it proves that, that we're on the right track in, in problem solve. No, the problem doesn't start there. That's a great beginning. But when they start being more inclusive, when they start bringing uh, people of color, leaders in our community, into the table in order to make a decision or whatever aspect in the community we want to do, that's when you're being more inclusive instead of just reaching out to us after they already had their discussion on the table saying, this is what we're going to do. Uh, I know there's been a lot of uh, efforts being done on the, on the past five years to trying to to be more inclusive. But I think they don't realize the difference between being diverse and being inclusive. And I think that's the the, the little uh, hill that we need to, to get over, you know, on that aspect. And once institutions that are already doing business or things in a certain way decide we need to do things in a different way in order to be more inclusive, I think that's when you're going to start seeing some real change here in the community. I mean, when you think about being inclusive, it's where people really need to take the time to think about are the people who are making up the diversity in their community, in their institution, are those people really feeling like they can be their full selves? That they're not having to look in the mirror in the morning and pack away elements of themselves, be it their sex- sexuality, their gender, their race, whatever it's going to be. And then do those people feel similar levels of ownership because a lot of times we simply talk about, oh, are people satisfied, uh, climate surveys, whatever we're going to do. But do people feel a real sense of ownership where they're going to say, I want to vouch for this community. I want to vouch for this company. So many things like that. And a lot of times those conversations seem to me to be missing in terms of people really being themselves and feeling that they have the same ownership as the next person. Do you all ever run across that thing being kind of overlooked? Um, look, that's why I created my own, uh, my own company, my own newsroom, was because I did oftentimes when I was in other newsrooms um, and I would have to come in and I'd have to pitch my story ideas. Like, I really want to do this story idea about this. And people would look at me and be like, oh, there you go, Maria, <laughs> wanting to do another story about the Bronx, i.e., you know, people of color. Um, by the way, I just premiered on CBS Sunday Morning, uh, one of the all-time great television news programs in our country. And I just premiered there. I'm, I'm their newest contributor. And I feel really proud about the fact that the first story I did for them was a, a day in the life of a New York City bodega. You know, what are bodegas? What are the corner grocery store? What do they symbolize? We were showing, um, not telling people what urban America looks like. The urban America that President Trump describes as carnage and um, death and destruction um, is actually a haven, not a haven, but it is a, a source of a tremendous amount of life, just life, and um, and Latinos and Latinas as immigrants running businesses and having all kinds of positive impact in their communities in all different ways. So I created a newsroom where people can feel like they can bring their whole selves. That's what I hope. I mean, we'd have actually you'd have to talk to my staff, right? But that's what we attempt to create. And our newsroom that produces Latino USA and In the Thick, um, our, our um, award-winning work, um, is super diverse, right? So we have uh, Hindi, we have Orthodox Jewish, we have um, Latino Jewish, we have 
Latino atheist, immigrant, born here, um, African-American, you know, from the South. Like we, we did that very consciously because we want to create a space in a newsroom where you can bring your whole self in. And we think it's working, right? I mean, the audience for Latino USA grew by 45% last year. So obviously that kind of diversity is not just, you know, it, it feels good, right, to be recognized, but it's actually really smart business. I mean, what you're doing, I mean, it's so impressive. It's so inspiring. Tar and I were talking about it earlier that we, we could only dream to be able to play a role in telling the stories on the level that you're telling. But I just think about the idea that there's so many people who you're touching and so many doors that you're opening in terms of what you're bringing to the television screens through CBS and what you're doing with PBS and what you, you know, people end up listening, you know, through NPR and through podcasts where either it can open up doors for people to have conversations and recognize the humanity of communities that they had only thought of as whatever label was the label of that time. But also, if we're not just talking about the majority or people who are different looking at those communities, I think the people in those communities, you know, as you've mentioned before, that they, they have less of that feeling of invisibility. Because that, that's a tough thing to stomach, that either your community or the things you value, the things you love day to day are either not talked about or they're misconstrued as the negative all the time. I mean, thank you. Thank you for, for, for really opening the door for more positive conversations. Thank you for, for making it so people can feel like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't my story today, but that sure looks, you know, different than what I usually see. Maybe my story will be next week or the week after. So, you know, what's, what's really beautiful, Chris, is that increasingly um, people are, are stopping me. Um, they see me uh, because I do, whether it's CBS or I'm on MSNBC um, or the, whether the work on PBS – um, or they recognize my voice. I mean, that's a really funny part where I'm in the backseat of a car and I'm having a conversation and suddenly they'll say, hey, your voice sounds really familiar. Um, but what I love when people, I, I call them my news angels because I believe that they um, want to show their love for the work. And um, and that to a journalist actually is like the best, the, the best kind of um, enforcement, right? Is that thank you for your work. You are helping us as a people and as a country. And so I'm very, um, I'm very, I'm very pleased. I feel very touched by the amount of love there is for the work, this real kind of genuine affection for our work. Um, and I do think that we are having a teeny bit impact. You know, we're, we're, we, we are national. We'd like to be bigger, but the people who do consume our media, I think they do get touched and that's kind of beautiful. And I, and I would like to also thank you for that, because looking at the subject matters that you take on Latino USA, and even the, the program, the, the American by the numbers, mm -hmm. you know, it's not about just Latino. So, so people need to see that it's, it's more about, you know, um, all of us. Right. That's why when, when, when we picked a name for, for, for a newspaper, we picked Hola America. It's about everyone. Of course, the Latino or the Hola is just a starting point on that aspect. And thank you, thank you for the stories that you do. The stories about the, uh, the different aspects of the uh, 
non-minority groups, exactly. the underrepresented groups, maybe, right. that, that you, you're really pointing out all, all the aspects of it. And I enjoy, you know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of the podcasts. And uh, if nobody's seen American by the numbers uh, about the small town of Claxton, Georgia, I recommend Google it. <laughs> you know, find it on YouTube. Right, because you fantastic. wouldn't expect Georgia, right? Georgia has one of the most... Um, in the state of Georgia, there is one of the most diverse square miles in the country. And um, and they're figuring out. And actually, the whole American South is experiencing a tremendous amount of, of um, demographic change. And a lot of attention is put on what's happening with the American South, which I love. But the truth is, is that the Midwest is also experiencing this. But it's also it's been longer in the Midwest, as you know, right here. Um, and I don't know where I am because I know I'm in one of the quad cities, but I never know which one. I know that I've crossed a lot of bridges uh, and I know that I'm looking at the Mississippi, <laughs> but uh, I don't know which city. Well, right now we're, we're right here in Rock Island. Yes. Home of Augustana I, College. I thought I was in Rock Island. I was like, I know that I'm on the campus. It must be that we're in Rock Island. But it is, um, you know, this part of the region and my kind of message as I come out to these to this region um, is to say, own your power. And understand that you have a capacity to help shape the national narrative. Um, this you you here in this community, you are creating change in a way that um, that is dynamic and exciting. And it's a very scary time for a lot of people. I do not want to diminish that for people who have mixed status in any way, shape, or form close to them or families. Like you know, I have a lot of people who I'm very worried about. Um, but those of us who have the privilege of um, having our status taken care of, then. This is a time to, um, you know, to, to be positive and to be engaged and to keep our eyes open for those who are experiencing a lot of challenges right now and to not forget them. I think between communities of color, a lot of times we allow, you know, past misconceptions, some of the stereotypes that have been put forth in the media um, in the past, all of those things to sometimes divide us. I'll never forget um, right down the street in the Florisante community in Moline, a number of years ago, there was a big push, and unfortunately it ended up being successful, but to to close um, a school, an elementary school there in a, a very predominantly uh, Mexican-American and, and Mexican immigrant community, a low so- socioeconomic status. And I remember working with some of the people in the community, and I said, you know what, this is something that the Rock Island County NAACP needs to get involved in. And everybody's like, well, why would the NAACP get involved? And I kind of floated it. And and it certainly was hesitation because with the NAACP, it's mainly the African-American community. But then I said, I said, stop. Instead of just floating ideas, let's get some people in the room and tell these stories. Mm-hmm. So we had some folks go with me to the education committee from the NAACP. And all of a sudden, once the stories were told, a lot of these very veteran educators who had seen these tactics used in black communities decades prior, as well as right now, all of a sudden they said, wait a minute, we get it. And I mean, some of the folks who stood up the strongest for that community ended up being either people from the NAACP or people who were those retired black educators where they they just wouldn't be moved. I think you remember in the school board meeting, they tried to limit their time. So they split up the statement among like seven people. And after their two minutes was up, the next person would talk. And people were kind of shocked that, oh, wait a minute, we had a little bit of unity between black and brown communities, but that unity came through actually sitting down and hearing the stories and saying, wait a minute, 
we're, we kind of are dealing with some of the same things. We just hadn't been talking to one another. I mean, either one of you, have you seen times where maybe when, when communities of color actually have a minute to talk to one another that they say, wait a minute, we have much more in common than what has been forced upon us? So I just got back from Western Minnesota. Um, and in the middle of nowhere, um, there is a small town where you have Somali refugees, Mexican immigrants, um, recent and not so recent, and a lot of white folks figuring it out. And and they're figuring it out because they've got to. Um, and, and in particular, there was a, a, a wonderful Mexican woman who's basically like a community grassroots activist in this community. And she um, is working really hard to build bridges with the Somali community. And she said, look, I do this because they're my neighbors. We live in the same housing complex. And I do this because I'm, I'm human. But she said, I also want to do this because Mexican-Americans and Mexicans have issues with black people and people from Africa. And I want to show that we are all the same tribe. We are all the same tribe. And I just kind of loved what it was so simple, you know. But the fact that she would go and she would knock on her neighbor's doors. And when they opened the doors, they would say, ay, hola, you know. And, and we looked into their homes, right, into the homes of the Somali um, families living in this housing complex. And it was like a, a window into, oh, my God, I could be in Somalia right now. This is a beautiful home. I want to walk in. I want to sit down. I want to eat everything. I want to, you know, look at the way in which they've, um, you know, decorated their home, the amazing kind of – Somalis are a, a, an amazing, educated, um, historical people. And now they're living in western Minnesota. Mexicans are a beautiful, you know, complex, come from civilizations, indigenous civilizations. Um, there were at one point more Africans in Mexico than there were Africans in the United States. So the work at trying to create those kinds of like way, way back understanding is a beautiful thing. So I, I just say power to it. And of course, I'm also, by the way, not Pollyanna. And, um, you know, this notion that it is identity politics or not, I have a real problem with. Um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, so I understand the issue of seeing yourself in the people most unlike you and not making assumptions that just because you have the same ethnic or racial or cultural background that that is going to necessarily make you into a real ally. I think all I have to say on that, you, you, you hit all the right marks, is with, with, if people are afraid of, of, of a certain group of people, being Somalians, being refugees for certain area, being Mexicans, being African Americans, uh, all, all you have to do, like I say, is get to know some of them, get to know the people. Once you get to know the people, you start uh, seeing that the misconceptions are—that's what they are—misconceptions, uh, stereotypes. And once you start knowing to people, you start valuing them as a person, you know, and you start um, seeing that you have a lot more things in common than really the things that make you different with them. I just want to thank you all. This has been a very enlightening conversation. And I know Tar and I are very excited to be able to uh, speak to you. But, yeah, I think we all have work that we need to keep doing. And, and I just thank both of you for taking this time to chat about these important issues. And hopefully we all can keep trying to make a difference where wherever we find the space. Thank you. Thank isn't, it, you. isn't it great that podcasts exist now? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we can put this out, right? And exactly. That's, that's a wonderful thing. And thank you for all of your work in, in just inserting your voice into the dynamics of this community um, and for making the Midwest your home. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Maria Inahosa and Tar Macias. Next time on Margins, I will talk with my friend, Dr. Melanie Price, professor of Africana Studies and Political Science over at Rutgers University. She's also the author of The Race Whisperer, Barack Obama and the Political Uses of Race. <laughs>